Welcome, guys, to the Restore Podcast uh, with me, Owen Walker. I'm here today with a, uh, a friend, um, Abby Carter. Welcome, Abby. Hello, thank you for having me. Pleasure, absolute pleasure, absolute pleasure. Now, the mandate of this podcast, as everyone knows, really is just about having restorative conversations with real people. And, and in doing so, I think it's really good just to have a, a 360 on society um, from some fascinating and uh, some, some absolutely necessary conversations, really. So, Abby, um, if you could just introduce yourself, just a little bit about your background, away from what you do, and then we'll just do a deep dive into today's conversation. Okay, so um, by profession, I am a forensic archaeologist, which means that I um, excavate homicides and homo- uh, homicides and genocides based on the process of what a normal archaeologist would do. We um, use archaeological techniques in a homicide and genocide, but only ever in a forensic capacity. So um, it has to be within the last 70 years to have been forensic. And um, so I, I knew I always wanted to do criminology of some form or be involved in that sort of area, but I was far more involved in the practical side of things rather than the theory. So I um, I did my BSc in archaeology at Cardiff University and then did my master's in um, forensic archaeology and international crime scene investigation at Bournemouth. Wow, 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 wow. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. So um, just as, as you as you started sort of your, your forensic career and you knew that was something that you were you were quite interested in, um, what what drew you into what you're involved with now, which is which is very much more sort of focused around the, the, the Bosnian atrocities? How did how did that come about? How did you start to focus on the Srebrenica atrocities and or massacre? So my tutor and lecturer at Bournemouth during my master's had been one of the principal archaeologists who worked in Srebrenica shortly after the war. I think he was there in nineteen. 19- 98, and he worked for the International Commission of Missing Persons as a forensic archaeologist. So he was one of the very first people to be excavating the mass graves. I wasn't qualified at the time. And um, then many years later, he was uh, lecturing me as a student. And during my dissertation time, um, I said I wanted to work on um, real evidence as opposed to theory again. And I'd done well enough in my course for him to say, yes, okay, you can do that. And um, he said, if you're willing to, you can work with me on the evidence from Srebrenica. And I didn't really know a huge amount about it at the time. So I was, it was a real um, jumping at the deep end sort of situation. And as soon as I started researching it, um, I just couldn't let it go. And I, uh, when you realise the story about Srebrenica in Bosnia, it's just the most horrendous situation that I felt so privileged to be allowed to do that. Um, and it was real evidence that I was working on. So... Um, and it was being it was to be used for uh, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia against General Maladic at the time, but there were other war criminals who were being tried at the time as well. But it was Maladic that I was working on. Wow, wow, that's that's amazing. So, so just just I guess panning back a bit, a little bit. So at the moment, you run a company. Um, so you're the director of Forensic Resources Limited. And, mm-hmm. and and so do you just focus on um, some of the war atrocities uh, in Srebrenica or is, or is it a, a little bit more sort of wider in its its focus or is it quite is it quite focused on? Okay, so in terms of the company, um, I grew up in the Middle East and I um, kind of I got to the point of being qualified and I've done all my exams and stuff. And then with being a forensic archaeologist, thankfully in the UK, we don't have that many buried murders and certainly not genocides. We're very um, lucky in that respect but so my job would have taken me abroad and 
by the time I'd sort of grown up abroad all the time, I, I kind of wanted to settle a little bit in the UK and just have a little bit of time in one place. And, and plus, I don't think my parents were that happy about the first place I'd be working would be somewhere such as Iraq or somewhere like that. So I think they wanted me to just settle for a little time as well. So um, I set up, I worked in industry for a couple of years. I was a research assistant at the university and then um, worked in industry for a year. And then I set up Friends at Resources. And it really doesn't have a lot to do with uh, human rights genocide side of thing. It has, it's very much human rights on a singular um, scale. So we reanalyze um, prosecution evidence for defense lawyers and barristers or for insurance fraud investigations, etc. So it is on a single basis. So we're working um, using lots of different disciplines. So we have 43 different disciplines, one of which is forensic archaeology, my one. Um, but we do all sorts of different things for the criminal justice system in the UK. And then the Srebrenica and international human rights stuff is my sort of sideline to keep me busier on other sides of things. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that sounds fascinating, Abby. So just again, so I think what I'd like to do is just really dig into the Srebrenica uh, genocide. But before we do that, and, and just really dissect it um, from your knowledge and your background, but just looking at just, just, just digging into a little bit of your background, actually, Abby, because um, so you've, Actually, you know, got a very impressive CV. Just looking through some of your things, so so female entrepreneur of the year from the South Wales Business Awards, um, one of the most uh, one of the hundreds top hundred most influential women in Wales from the from the Wales Online, um, and so, so some of these fantastic acc- accolades. Would you um, again before we deep dive, would you would you say that some of these some of these awards and or accolades are just uh, an, an outwards expression of the the passion you've shown for for your domain of domain of practice is it is it literally just because you've just been so focused and and just uh, and and people have kind of recognised your your specialism and and your insights or how how has how how have how have these people come to your door would 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 you say it's it it has it, it been through networking is it through um, yeah um I would say. I mean, I don't want to put myself down, but I would say that Wales is a small place. So, I mean, <laughs> to have those, um, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to say that I didn't deserve them, but it just, we, there's not many of me in Wales. So when people talk about forensics, invariably, and, and I'm female and I'm fairly young, so I get the attention quite quickly in terms of um, what the company has done in Wales. But I think um, I'm very proud of what I've done because I do a lot of mentoring for young people in Wales as a, a huge entrepreneurship drive in Wales. So I do a lot of networking and, and judging for panels or for mentoring people or just I go out to schools all the time to give speeches about setting up your own company or about human rights, etc. So um, I do a lot of work in the background, which to be then recognised for things like that is wonderful. Um the, the recent one with Huarateg, that was the most important award for me because Huarateg is the, Wales' leading equalities charity. And Huarateg in Welsh means fair play. Mm. So um, th- that one really did make a, a big impact on me. And um, and that was specifically for my work on the board of Remembering Shevanitsa Wales. Um, so most recent and most important to me, really. Um, but... Yeah, I think I've, the awards I've had have all been for different things. So some have been entrepreneurship, some have been mentoring, some have been Bosnia, 
Um, and all of those things are little bits and facets of my life. So I am I'm proud of all of them, really. Yeah, absolutely. So so um, so that that the one you were just talking about was 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 last year, I guess. I guess wasn't it? Was it the yeah. Women uh, Inspiring Women um, Award um, last year, which is which is fantastic, absolutely fantastic. So again, just sort of pivoting before we we do any any of the deep dives. Um, so looking at just some some of your other um, work, Abby. Um, just just coming down to um, some of your work within um, the contemporary climate, really, because we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. It's 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 not been easy per se on on anyone, um, clinicians uh, as critical care paramedic yeah. and or other people. Um, I understand just from a from a, a Welsh government because I understand you work with Welsh government quite closely. Um, it, you've been asked to. Um, to uh, look at a, a memorial so that's that's very recently come about because with um the charity remembering which is what i am the, ch- the co-chair of in wales um their two remits are to educate people in the consequences of hatred which is what i do in schools and what us as a board do a lot um but the second remit is that we should commemorate every year the the lives lost of those victims and remember the survivors and the victims as well mm. And um, so every year we hold a memorial, but obviously this year, and also this year, importantly, is the 25th anniversary since the genocide in Srebrenica. So it's a really, really important year for us. And we had some amazing, well, the the memorial that we had set up was amazing. We had our first minister to be keynote speaker. We had a Bosnian survivor coming over. We had the Sarajevo National Theatre coming over from Bosnia. We had Mukesh Kapila, OBE, who used to work for the UN coming over from Geneva to speak for us. we had our deputy minister lighting peace candle. It was going to be absolutely phenomenal, but obviously all of that's now had to be cancelled or at least postponed. So we're going to do it next year. Yeah. Um, but as a result of this year, we're trying to think of alternative ways because we can't forget, we can't not remember on the day. And the 11th of July is the day that the genocide started. So that's when we commemorate. And um, so we're trying to think of alternative ways. And we've got a lovely commemoration coming up. The Welsh Government are going to be um, creating a compilation film for us. And the First Minister is going to do a speech that I'm going to write and he's going to record that. So we'll send out a compilation video. And um, I was speaking then to a lady who wants to set up at the very first... I I was going to say it's the first Welsh Peace Institute, but I actually think it's the first UK Peace Institute. Um, And... um, so we're in collaboration at the moment. In fact, that's what my plan for the rest of today is, is um, working with her on uh, plans for the uh, Peace Institute. But it's really important that um, where we're setting it up or where they're setting it up with my help is um, the Temple of Peace and Health in Cardiff. Fantastic. And it's really important the way when we think about peace, we also have to think about health because people are not going to be happy about promoting peace if they're not well themselves and that could be mental it could be physical and we see a lot the the link between health and peace and um if people are feeling anxious and they're not feeling right in themselves there's a lot less drive to be uh peaceful in lots of different ways and that's just the human nature to be like that so we're we're really pleased actually the location of where it will be set up will be um encompassing peace, health, and global politics, etc. So there'll be lots of different things. And hopefully, remembering Srebrenica will be one of the core lessons um, to be learned because the story is phenomenal for people who don't know. Uh, it can teach so many different aspects of 
um, resilience and and historical fact. It's, it's an amazing story, albeit very sad. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And we'll, we'll actually look at that in a second, because just doing a bit of background research this morning and or last night, just myself, just just the broad brush stuff, it's, you know, it's pretty horrendous, actually. And, mm. and I'd, yeah, I'd love to do a bit of a deep dive on, on that with you. Just looking at the, 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 the similarities between a genocide and what we're seeing now with COVID-19, Abby, from your perspective, have you, is there any similarities you can draw? Yeah, I mean, in Bosnia... It was a really civil society, and I don't mean that just in that people just got on. I mean, as in the three core religions, um, well, three main religions there are uh, Christian, um, Croats, Catholic, um, I beg your pardon, Orthodox Serbs, Croat Catholics, and um, Muslim Bosniaks. And uh, they all got on perfectly well. And Jewish synagogues are right next to mosques and churches. And it was a really peaceful community. And within a few days, few weeks, and overnight then at the end, everything turned to chaos. And that's almost how I saw lockdown. We were talking about it a little bit, then some people were getting a little bit more scared, and then overnight we went into lockdown. So that was the first thing I noticed. And then it was the sheer panic from some people um, not knowing how to cope with something like this. And again, with the Bosnian war, a lot of people, it went from zero to 100 very quickly. And it was, people were put into camps, people were ostracized, people were segregated, people were taken away. And it's not nearly on the same scale in, in terms of COVID, but it's people's perception of being taken away from the norm, which was really scary for some people. It's how mental health gets affected by things. In terms of the death side of um a genocide and covid i'm not going to link the number of people for sure but what i would say is in terms of the muslim culture when you're to bury a member of your community it has to be within 24 hours ideally and as i mentioned earlier we're now 25 years along and still people are not being able to be buried from bosnia because their bodies haven't been identified or, or recovered and that's the same that's happening here. People are not able to have um, what they would call a respectful burial because of time or lack of people being allowed to be there. Um, there's Also in Bosnia, there's a huge issue with denial that the genocide didn't happen. And I see that a lot here. There's a, not so much denial that COVID is apparent, but I, just that it's not important or people think they're far more resilient than others. So there's an element of that. And then there's there's great things that come out of it as well, because in Bosnia, one of the, the lessons we teach is just how resilient the communities were and how they all came together and they bridged that divide and they came together to help each other. Um, and I talk about different faiths in that as well. Mm -hmm. So um, all sorts of people came to support. And I feel that that's what we're seeing as well in a positive note with Corona, that the, the social societal resilience and um, love for people is lovely. So once we've got over the initial fear and the heartache, mm. there's wonderful things happening as well. So, um, and in Bosnia, it certainly remains that way over the last um, you know two decades. We see such amazing um, restorative justice in Bosnia, as well as being, you know, without sounding too crass, but it is a tinderbox waiting to happen still because of the political situation over there. Yeah. But 
such great things have happened out of an awful situation. And I do see that in, in the UK or globally at the moment with Corona as well. There's wonderful stuff happening. But um, so there's two sides of that that coin, I see. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I can attest to that to, to that too, Abby. Like you said, how how quickly the, the, the political and physical landscape can change, like you said, from the emergence of what might be a considered threat to actually uh, people completely changing their perception and or reality um, and, you know, going, like I say, going into complete lockdown, but that, 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 that completeness of time being actually quite narrow and, and yeah. like you saying, things falling apart actually in, 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 in the, in the uh, early to mid nineties up until like 1995. Um, but also, um, like you said, some of the resilience that we've shown as 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 a nation, which is fantastic, actually. Um, and in the midst of that, some very different narratives. Although I, I, it's interesting, isn't it? We all share the same concept of, of lockdown, but in 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 that narrative, actually, we're all having very different experiences. You know, uh, myself and and uh, a colleague um, um, that that I. Um, work with quite closely um although in different services have very similar experiences of some horrendous yeah. cardiac arrests um but actually someone else might have a very different experience of covid19 uh, together with yourself um abby and it's it's just it's it's different experiences the same kind of lockdown but but i think what it does for the for the healthcare community it uh, until i'd seen it with my own eyes i think and I guess probably the same with Srebrenica, and we'll, t- we'll actually talk about this in a second, is until I'd seen it with my own eyes, like the, the, the loss of life, the early, young loss of life with, in COVID-19, I, I hadn't really truly understood the gravity and longevity of the situation, really. Um, yeah. And then I think it would probably be the same if I'd have been there on the 11th of July, 1995. I would have, I would have, it, it, it only then resonates because just to put this into context, Abby, and I'll let you take over actually, you know, mm-hmm. this has been defined by Kofi Annan in 2005 as, as the worst atrocity on European soil since the second world war. Um, yeah. So on the 11th of July, 1995, there were 8,000 deaths of men and boys. So the men were separate, men and boys were separated from the women, elderly and young. And, and were killed in in uh, were were slaughtered in mass graves, um, and it wasn't in, until the fourteenth of December in in the same year it was at the Dayton Accord, of, of mm-hmm. which of which they which they agreed some kind of terms of of peace or indeed um, ceasefire, but but actually. You know, we're not seeing. We we have seen similar numbers, I and mean, we're up to twenty thousand numbers. The difference is this. You know, this pandemic doesn't differentiate men, women, boys. Um, but but actually, this you know, this was a very purposeful act. Whereas mm. the the pandemic it isn't necessarily. Anyways, so there is similarities. Only and like you say, differences. But let's let's do a deep dive because this is until I did a bit of background just because I knew I was talking to you. I, I didn't realize some of the gravity of this um, uh, of this genocide. So let's 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 focus on it. So, a couple of things really it wasn't necessarily just the eight thousand deaths. It was twenty five to thirty thousand IDP internally displaced people um, across across uh, Bosnia Herzegovina and 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 elsewhere. But the dissolution. Of, from 1989, where it was a former Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia, and and the dissolution within three to four years of uh, and fragmentation of of the state into five different states. So just 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 
I guess in a in a broad brush sense, Abby, could you just describe just the fragmentation culminating in the genocide? You've done really good research, Owen, because not many people work that all out from um, Wikipedia <laughs> or what's online. Um, you basically sort of done it for me, really, because yeah. Um, yeah, so 1989, <clears throat> it was the former Yugoslavia, and Joseph Tito, with the death of him, came, and, and although he ran a very communist. Uh, you know, country, people found unity in that and they found happiness and they found a brotherhood in that and it was, it was, it was working. And um, whatever other people might say about communism, it was working in Bosnia, well, in Bosnia and um, former Yugoslavia. And um, when he died, it gave rise to those individuals who wanted to take power and to have a nationalist um, movement and uh, Milosevic was that person to start that. And um, he wanted to see a greater Serbia, very much like um, Adolf Hitler wanted the Aryan race and he wanted to have um, the Jewish people um, segregated. Milosevic very much wanted to regain the power that he was losing as um, the former Yugoslavia broke down. So there was various different um, moments of independence where, first of all, uh, Slovenia went and then... Um, uh, Macedonia left and made it independent. And then in 1992, April, I think it was, um, Bosnia declared independence. And slowly, Serbian um, power was being lost and they wanted a greater Serbia. And so that was ultimately the, the start of the war. And in April 1992, um, the siege of Sarajevo broke out, which was the longest military siege in history. And it became effectively... Um, a well, it was a siege, it was exactly what it says, and no one was allowed in or out of the city. And it was just the most horrendous barricade of um Serbs against everybody else, basically. And I know a lot of my friends over in um Sarajevo and what they went through some of them younger, some of them older. One of my friends was 19 at the time, and he was literally on his way to um college. And someone handed him an AK 47 and just said, Defend your front line because this is the other front line. And it was within, you know, metres of where he used to go and meet his friends in the park and whatnot. And um, and it went from a normal life of a punk rocker, is what he was at the time, to him having to go out at the depths of night just to try and get a bath load of water for his family. They would be burning tyres in their uh, log burners in the house just to try and get heat. Uh, and Sarajevo, I mean, people would have seen the um, Olympics that was there. So they get heavy, heavy snowfall. And this went through, and it was just shy of four years that the siege lasted. Um, and what that was doing, though, the siege was the perfect example, uh, excuse for people to not be looking at what was going on in the rest of Serbia, uh, uh, um, Bosnia, sorry. And it was um, used as um, perfect um, gosh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like media, uh, where they were showing, oh, we're just having a civil dispute. You don't need to look at the rest of Bosnia. Don't worry about us. We're just, we'll get over it, fine. And um, when you do look at the rest of Bosnia, there were death camps being set up, there were rape camps. Um, and they were, what I find really difficult about Bosnia is the fact that the international community totally failed Bosnia. We knew what was going on. It was on our news. And our, all our politicians were talking about it. You know, we had four or five different intervention talks in the UK at the time, and not one of those um, created any sort of output to be able to help Bosnia. Um, the most famous media uh, or journalism 
piece was where Ed Vulliami and Penny Marshall were invited by, I think it was Kerstich, um, yeah, might have, or Karadich, maybe it's Karadich, invited by them, uh, by him to go to the Omaska concentration camp, which was the most famous concentration camp in Bosnia. And he said, come along and you'll see it's only a, it's only a holding camp. This is a labor camp that we're just keeping people in for safety. And there's a very famous photograph of the man um, in front of the barbed wire, absolutely skeletal. There's nothing about that photo that would say that it was a labor camp. It was absolutely a concentration death camp. And uh, he put that photograph on Time magazine in 1992 at the beginning of the war. And yet no one intervened and it carried on until 1995. And the whole point of Srebrenica is that it's the culmination of the war. So we've gone all of those years and um, nothing's been done. Nothing's been, no, no help has been sent over. And um, the UN went over and they um, declared Srebrenica a safe haven. So naturally people would flee there because it's going to be secure and they're going to be saved. So I think it was something like 60,000 people fled over to, to Srebrenica. And it's only a small tin, uh, it's a silver mining um, village, a town. It's very, very small. And it became basically their own concentration camp because so many people fled there for safety that there was just no sanitation, there was no medical help. The aid was very rarely getting in because the Serbs were still trying their hand at fighting um, against the UN there. And the UN were only a peacekeeping mission, you know, they weren't allowed to retaliate. Um, so every so often, Serb forces would try their hand at sending in um, gunfire or mortars, etc. Um, and, I mean, long story short, basically what happened was that um, the UN Dutch Battalion couldn't or wouldn't, uh, I best not get into that conversation on this podcast, um, but uh, couldn't or wouldn't um, defend Srebrenica, and they basically had to put their hands up and say, we can't help you. And they let the Serbs in, and um, within five days and six nights, eight thousand three hundred seventy-two men and boys were killed. They basically the the Miladic took the women and the children away on buses and said, you know, beautiful propaganda films that he was creating, absolutely mm -hmm. wonderful, just saying, look, I'm looking after you. Here's some teddy bears. Here's some food. Here's some this that, and the other for the the women and children. So we'll come back for the men, no problem. Uh, we'll put you in safety. I might add that they, you know, the vast majority of them went to rape camps and labour camps. And um, the men knew that they weren't going to be saved because they were all of fighting age. So I think it was 16 and over that they were um, asked to remain in Srebrenica and they would come back for them. And so the men just started walking. They knew that they weren't going to be safe and they walked what's now known as the death march from Srebrenica to the next safe haven, which is Chisla, which is over 70 kilometres. Mm. And... Um, and if anyone hasn't been to Bosnia, it's very much like Turkey. So it's very mountainous, it's forestry, it's boiling hot in the summer. So now this is now the 11th of July when this all started. Yeah. Um, and yeah, over the next five, six days, they had to walk and they had to hide in the forest. They had to, I mean, I know one of my friends whose twin brother, uncle, father, and all of his cousins were murdered during the death march, but he survived but he survived by lying in a tiny river or stream and just having his nose just above the water. And they were, you know, Serbs were walking past him with guns and um, uh, machetes and all sorts of stuff every day. And then he would just crawl through the night to try and get a bit further, a bit further. Um, 
and it got to the point where it was, it was sick because the, the um, Serbs were wearing the UN blue caps and going into the forest and calling out. They wore their uniform and they called out to the Serbs, uh, to the Bosniaks, sorry. They called out saying, you're safe, you're safe, you know, we've, we've come back, we're coming to look after you. And they called out with um, big uh, audio displays. And so people came out of the forest and then they said to them, your son and your brother must be in the forest, aren't they? And he goes, yeah, they are. And he goes, call out to them. So they got the men to call out to their loved ones. And they all came out and then they take them off to schools or courtyards or factories and massacre them there. Gosh. Um, so, I mean, it was a far larger loss of life over the whole Bosnian war. Yeah. So when we talk about Srebrenica, we talk about the 8,372 uh, people in five days. But when we talk about the whole of Bosnia, yeah. um, you know, it's a huge number of people. And also uh, the women that were uh, raped and a sexual violation. Um, Mladic was the very first war criminal ever in history to have the charge of genocidal rape against him because the form of genocidal rape goes to prove the um, the pattern, the systematic pattern of what he planned to do, which is wipe out a whole race through a generation. So he would imp have the, the women impregnated by Serbians. So then you would have a mixed race and then hopefully, finally, in his eyes, no Bosniak Muslims in the future because they would have wiped them out through generations as well. So he was the first person, and he was he was um, found guilty of it as well. So that's that's great. Um, mm. But it's the first ever in history, first person in history. Gosh, I mean, talk about sort of ethnic cleansing and sort of this totalitarian um, sort of mindset. But um, it, it just harkens to, to the fact that. Um, you know, people don't have ideas. Ideas have people. It's almost like mm. an ideology possesses, you know, possesses people to, and then, and then that can be embodied through a whole army, which, 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 like you said, you know, doesn't just lead to the deaths of, of, of 8,372 people, but through, through, you know, a whole cross section of society out there. Abby, what's it like to see these war graves when you when you get on the ground because eight thousand three hundred seventy two graves and or more must be just stop you in your tracks. Well, I mean, it's not. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, a mass grave is a mass grave, and it's yeah. it's absolutely harrowing and horrendous. But a lot of those bodies um, are still under the ground and or were just parts of bodies found in forests and things like that. So quite a few were not buried. And when we talk about the remains of what uh, every year that get buried at the cemetery in Potichari, um, that is generally a bone that is being, um, or a fragment of a bone that is being identified as that human and then being buried. Very rarely are people managing to have anything more than a single bone to be able to bury for their loved ones, which I find even more harrowing for them. Mm. Um, and every year, um, over the year will identify more bodies and then on the 11th of July they will get buried in the cemetery altogether um, and when I talked about denial earlier every year there are Serb people lining that road to the cemetery mocking and taunting and playing nationalistic songs even 25 years later um, absolutely joyous in the idea that someone is mourning the death of their family member 25 years later so it's it's just unbelievable stuff that's going on over there still yeah um but yeah in terms of <clears throat> i mean i don't know how to describe it because your work is your work and i would find that horrendous my work is my work and i find it what i trained for um 
So I don't know how to explain it any more than um, it's it's just horrible. And yeah. but it, you, the whole point of us doing what we do is to try and re- gain evidence for those um, survivors, so that they have some solace and they have something, some hope to know that they're you know you know, an item of their loved one might be found so that they can mourn because that gives closure. Yeah. You know, a lot of people might think, do they even, they know their child's not going to come back. They know that. Yeah, they do. But actually they need to have something that they can hold, first of all, and they need a place where they can go. They don't want to go to a generic um, memorial site. They want to go to the grave of their loved one and that helps them. So if we can do that, um, so when you see the horrendous sights of it, it is horrendous, but you know that you're doing a really good job for them and they need you. And it's the absolute privilege to be able to do it. Yeah, fantastic. Abby, absolutely fantastic. So just to differentiate between sort of primary and secondary mass graves, because I'm still actually not quite sure myself, what is the difference between a, a primary and secondary uh, mass Okay. Grave? So during the conflict, when, um, I hate calling it conflict, because conflict to me sounds like there's two sides yeah. and this, there wasn't two sides here. Um, so... During the atrocities, they would be taking them um, in big groups of people, like I said, to factories or to warehouses, and they would shoot them there. Then they would take them to the mass graves that they were building. What happened was that the American forces were flying over, and they saw, they found aerial photography of what was going on, and they let it slip to Mladic and Serb forces that they had evidence of the mass graves that they were building, uh, digging, sorry, and putting the bodies in. So Mladic ordered for those mass graves to be opened up and for the bodies to be moved to secondary and actually tertiary mass graves as well. And what they created was this beautiful picture of the front line. It's almost going all the way, or what they call the front line. So it's going along the death march. And um, they're saying it was us being respectful to um, bury the remains of the people who were caught in this war the civil war that we're having. So we were actually just burying the people who had been killed during this. And um, and you can see all these graves going along the edge of the, the um, what they were calling their front line. So what we needed to prove was that people from the primary mass graves that had been there for a while had actually been moved to secondary ones. If he was telling the truth and they really were a civil war um, burial, respectful burial, then we would have... Uh, bodies from different times of the um, war in different locations and that wasn't the situation and also I would question whether something's a civil war when you find people in a mass grave who have got their arms ligatured and tied together and they're wearing blindfolds and they've been shot in the back of the head that doesn't sound civil to me Um, so we needed to find the evidence from those secondary and tertiary mass graves to prove that it was absolutely not civil and that they had been moved from the primary ones because that's not normal. That wouldn't normally happen. Yeah. So it was to try and um, counteract his um, testimony that he'd given, basically. So it was absolutely crucial evidence. And that, and ironically, the evidence that I was working on was going to be crucial to finding that secondary mass grave element yeah. or the evidence for it as well. What were some of the challenges, Abby, around the evidence you were working with? Because I, I suppose there's a certain facet of decomposition in the body uh, in the graves having sort of going going back to them and I guess differentiation of, of just of, of identity um, is difficult sort of in a protracted phase of time was there any was there any sort of over overarching 
challenges that you found um, in either identification or indeed just in, in just collating the evidence? So the evidence from the mass graves uh, in terms of decomposition of the bodies, etc. I wasn't working on that because I wasn't in Bosnia during the excavation side of things. But certainly from a practitioner point of view, Yes, uh, but uh, with with burial, you do preserve a body to a certain extent, depending on the environment. So um, it, there's some areas of Bosnian um, uh, countryside that would almost desiccate the body because it would be an anaerobic environment and it would be very, very hot. And so you actually might end up more mummification than anything else, but that's over a long, much longer period of time. So um, to be honest... I don't think there was too much of an issue in terms of not being able to identify people through the decomposition. It was more that there was no identification of people. They didn't wear, they hadn't got their clothes on. I hadn't got their own clothes on. They'd been borrowing other people's or stealing, or they had very little clothing on to be able to identify them. The other issue with that is that um, through if we were to do identification processes here, we would use dental records, etc. But people. In this environment, in this area of Bosnia, they didn't have great healthcare, great medical assistance, so they didn't have the records that we would have here to be able to identify someone. So then we had to rely on um, some people visual um, identification or tattoos and things like that on them, or then we moved on to DNA. But a lot of the survivors didn't understand what you know the, the practitioners were trying to do and whether or not they would be happy to give their sample of DNA, etc. So there was a lot of issues. To do with that um but in terms of the evidence i worked on i didn't have any issues in terms of what was going on in the graves because the evidence i worked on was the safeco automatic watches and that was for for various reasons a lot of people in those mass graves were wearing safe automatic watches the main reason i would say is the fact that they are an automatic watch so they're very similar to a kinetic watch and so they have a pendulum in them which means that it will self generate its own uh, energy so as your body moves, the pendulum keeps moving and it will keep ticking. And then as soon as you take that watch off, it will take a, a certain number of hours to tick down and stop ticking. So by the nature of not having to change a battery because they last for life in that way, they're a very economical watch and they were very fashionable at the time. Um, so in my line of work as a forensic archaeologist, one of our first requests from any investigator is to work out time since death estimation of the body and it's very very unusual in fact it's never heard of to be able to have a literal time since death including the day and date which is found on those watches Gosh. so it was the foresight of my lecturers who were doing the excavations to think wow that piece of evidence is going to be absolutely crucial you know not least all of the other circumstances or not circumstantial all of the other evidence in the actual grave in terms of ballistics in terms of um, all the other stuff that we can get from archaeology but they just said those watches are going to be crucial to tell whether or not or what day those bodies went in because then I can work out the time since death in terms of how long it takes the, the, um, the watches to tick down and then with the secondary mass grave element I needed to see what would take those watches to start ticking again. Is it going to be the movement of the body being dug back up again and moved to a certain number of kilometres across rough terrain to then be manhandled again into another grave? Is that going to be enough to get that watch ticking again? And then we'll be able to identify whether or not that body had or hadn't been moved, etc. So that's that was the work I was doing. Wow. 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 That's, that's, um, that's pretty... 
jaw dropping, really, Abby, and and you know, really, really fundamental in in like I said, getting not only a precise time of death, but but just really sequentially piecing together the evidence, which is which is profound, actually. So, Abby, that's um, absolutely fascinating. And just so, just to hit fast forward now from from the co- um, collection of evidence uh, we were just talking about to sort of the the official ruling of a genocide by, by the International Courts of Justice. So, I believe it was confirmed a genocide in two thousand and seven, and Maladic was convicted of, like you said, not only not only um, murderous genocide but also a genocide of rape as well. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I think in the first instance when he was first um, in trial, it was something like 10 out of 11 counts. I I need to go back and look at that. And then he had a retrial when he tried to appeal and they found another um, count of genocide. Um, But the one count that they haven't found is for a province called Priador, which is a big problem for people in Bosnia. They're happy that, you know, he's been found guilty of X number of um, charges, but one of the biggest ones, which is actually where that Amaska concentration camp was, the most famous one, he didn't get found guilty of. But the genocidal rape is really important because I find that when people think of genocide, they think of death and finality or something. They seldom remember the people that have been affected um, and not been killed. So, and those are the people that have to live with it. You know, those people that lost their lives, as horrendous as it is, they have lost their life and they don't have to suffer anymore. It's the people that are left behind, the people waiting for them to come home. And there's a there's a group of people called the Mothers of Srebrenica and they created a group just to support one another and for the 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 ones who could to be able to liaise with the um, the force, you know, the, the companies that were helping or the medical practitioners, etc., and the legal teams to be able to then filter information through to the other mothers because... Um, you know, they're either older or also they don't have now any male people in their family. And in Bosnia, that is critical because males are still the people that will work and they will bring the income into the family. They're the ones that, you know, it is a very Muslim society, albeit very um, forward-thinking and very, very modern in terms of um, um, what happens in Bosnia. But the tradition is that the men are still the the breadwinners of the family and, and those mothers are all left behind without any sons, uncles, cousins, husbands. Um, and so the mothers of Shrebnitsa all look after each other. And likewise, there are a lot of women's charities in Bosnia who are looking after the women who have been sexually violated and they may have children through that situation. And not only is that a huge shame for them, but also a lot of them then get ostracised by their family because they have a mixed race and mixed ethnicity child. So there's there's huge issues remaining in Bosnia for those survivors. So we I don't want people to forget about them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you're right. It's you know it's far more wide-reaching than the than than the the deaths of of of, of those yeah. those people. Um, absolutely. So it's I mean I think the the work is both hugely important and transferable as well because because as 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 like you said before Abby shining a light on this means just we can we can all learn lessons you know from people that either weren't affected or maybe didn't weren't truly aware of the atrocities of Srebrenica and indeed the the um prior time to that so it's it's I think like you said it's about you know it's taking the lessons and 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 moving them forward so that we just never repeat the same 
the same acts yeah. um, again. And I think it's 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 hugely um, it's hugely beneficial in that in that sense. So yeah, so Abby, um, just looking at your career in total and just the drive that you possess and and where you've got to now, and so, some people, a lot of people really, including me, would uh, consider you to be a very successful and or driven woman. What what um, what sort of are some of the fundamental attributes of, of of where you've got to now? How do how do you feel you've got to where you are now in your career? Um, as as a successful woman and and also entrepreneur, um, I think I was a real warrior actually when I was younger. No, I still am. I'm a massive warrior still. But um, I'm one thing I didn't really worry about was my career because I always knew what I wanted to do. So it was always forensics in some way, criminology, etc. Um, the the human rights side of things has developed naturally as I've met different people. So you know the. The lecturer situation he got me into Srebrenica and then that has sort of snowballed because I realized that at that point that the mass um, element of human rights was what I wanted to focus on as a person but then I've gone for the singular human rights as a you know a company so I've sort of used both elements of that and I would say the biggest thing that I've done throughout my education and career is ask so I think if you don't ask you don't get so I I've irritated people from word go with my education because I wasn't academic at all at school. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't thick by any means, but I really struggled and I didn't find it a natural thing. So I had to constantly be asking for either extra tuition or for not allowances, but just like how I would benefit myself. So I really had to work out what my limitations were from a young age and accept them and just work with it. So I, you know, when I started my BSc it was actually a BA that I started and I quickly realized that, that wasn't going to get me to my end goal. So I asked if I could swap. So I was already annoying people within three weeks of my course. Then I was asking them during my final year, could I swap this coursework for this one? And can I change this module for that? Because I don't like that. And I really want to do this master's and I don't want to get a bad grade and I will get a bad grade if I do that. And somehow it worked and I didn't think that they would change a degree for me. Um, but my tutor, as much as I annoyed her, did say, I understand where you're coming from because I know what your plan is for the rest of your career. So I understand why you want to do this. So with, you know, a bit of nudging, she did do it. And then when I went and did my master's, you know, I, I, I said I didn't want to do theory and they gave me the practical um, experiments for the watches. Um, and it's not about me being stubborn. It was just about me knowing what suited my brain capacity right at the time. And what I was most focused on is if I, I find if you're not really interested in something, I won't do well in it. I'm not the type of person that can just read and and bosh out a, um, a paper just because that's what an exam needs. I need to be absolutely engaged in something. Um, and then when I set up the company, um, there's a lot of things that I, that was terrifying to set up the company. And, and I've, I've learned a lot of things over the last 12 years. But I have had mentors as well. So I've had different mentors at different times of my career. I've got the most amazing one now, Karen Holford at, univers- at the University of Cardiff. Um, she's got nothing to do with forensics, um, but she is absolutely superior in her field. And just learning from her is, has been amazing. And you just, you just have conversations with people. So, and you take what you need from that conversation. So a lot of the conversations, the networking that I do that I enjoy... It's not about my career. It's not about forensics. It's not about my topic necessarily. 
but I'm just learning from other people. I'm constantly absorbing from other people. Um, and then I put myself in positions that I didn't feel that comfortable with. You know, I've gone for different boards or committees that I know will benefit me because I'll have to learn an awful lot of other people's areas and disciplines that, that I'm not interested in, but I know I kind of need it for my personal growth. Mm. And it's the bigger picture. So I, I did apply for one uh, and I, I got the, um, the answer at Christmas. It was just two days before Christmas and I didn't get the position and I was absolutely gutted. And so many people had read my application and said, yeah, you're absolutely perfect for this role. And I didn't get it. And I, and I, but I'm a huge believer in fate. So I know that if I didn't get it, there was a reason why. Mm. And now I realise that the reason why is because actually this Peace Institute that's come around, the Academy in Wales, that's far more aligned with what it is that I want to be doing. And it's a much better uh, position for me. I can get far more involved in this and not have to be sort of the, the smaller, ver- smaller version of myself on the other board. Mm. Um, so I think that it's just... It, I massively believe in fate, so I don't worry about stuff so much as about, you know, about um, why something hasn't happened. I just focus on the next uh, thing that might pop up, and then this has popped up. Um, and I'm, I'm, I've, I've mentioned before to you that I'm quite spiritual, so I, um, I've managed to disengage from my work, which is really important considering the, the horrendous things I have to read or work on. Um, somehow I've always been really good at closing off at the end of a day or on weekends. Um, and sometimes, you know, something's really, really pertinent that's going on at the time. Then no, I don't, I don't switch off that well, but um, on the whole, I think I'm fairly good at it, which for a highly strong person like me, I'm quite surprised at. Yeah, <laughs> I never exactly. thought I'd be good at that, but yeah, having a bit of me time yeah. um, prioritizing myself every so often makes me a better version of me. So um, I just find as long as I can, break away from it, think about things, then I, I find that my career has quite naturally progressed in that respect and I haven't worried so much about it. Yeah, indeed, indeed, Abby. And, and like you said, you know, I'm, I think the, the, the premise of this podcast really is around is around equanimity of just uh, of, of work, life, rest, um, and just getting that balance right. Um, because like you said, if, you know, if you don't, you can't necessarily be the, be the best expression of who you are as a person. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, that, that message alone is key is, you know, it's taking enough time out for you to be, for Abby to be Abby, um, and, and, and that restorative, the kind of that, that, that restorative mindset of being a, bringing your best at work, but also learning what, how, and when you relax, because actually not a lot of people know quite how to relax. Actually, no. very few people know know how to relax and and actually you know one of the fundamental things I've learned as well is around uh, around play and coming back to the concept of play that we seem to lose sight of as adults and how how do we do that either through games or indeed through just interaction with others or just you know going out and riding a bike or doing something yeah. quite basic but actually brings you a lot of joy um so I think I think that is totally different for everyone like for me to relax I have to be busy I can't I'm not the type of person to sit down and watch a film if if I am then I'm probably ill if I'm if I'm sitting that long so I mean I still don't stop when I am relaxing but it is the thing that makes me relax I'll be cooking I'll be playing music I'll be um you know learning music all sorts of different things to try and relax and that's that's what does it for me but no one is normal in terms of there is no normality for something like that. Um, but I also find that if I'm not 
the best version of me. I can't also look after the other people in my life. So I've got lots of friends and colleagues who have just as stressful jobs. Um, you know, I couldn't assist you if you had a problem or something like that with the stressful job that you have if I'm not ready to do that. And I've always been sort of, I don't know, like a mother nature type nurturer of people. So I want to be available to my friends as well. Um, and especially with lockdown, I felt really frustrated being forced to not be able to see people and not be able to help people. And that's not in my nature. So I had to quickly get over my few meltdowns that I was having about it all. Had to get over that because I need to then be ready to help other people. And that's a burden I put on myself. It's not a job thing. It's not anything else, but more just wanting to be able to help other people. Um, so I think, and I don't even sit, it's not like I sit and meditate or reflect on anything. I'm just, whilst I'm cooking, whilst I'm gardening, whilst I'm playing music, I'll think of some, something. I'll go, that's quite good. I'll keep that. Yeah, and yeah, then, yeah, yeah. you know, it helps somebody else. And, and that's what I think, that's what makes the world go around is other people helping each other and, and then just doing good if you can in your job. Yeah, absolutely. 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 So just, just coming into land, like you said, we're on this metaphorical plane. Um, just, you, you did, you did mention, um, spirituality. How do you feel like spirituality gives to you, Abby? Do you feel like it, it helps you to achieve balance? And is there a certain type of spirituality that you practice? Yeah. So I, um, I have a condition that creates chronic pain. And so when I, um, was really struggling with that. I needed to have some way of not taking medication. So I did my Reiki course. And um, so I learned how to basically give myself uh, natural pain relief. And I was really good at it. It was, um, you know, if I was in the right zone and I was doing it right, I was able to stop all pain only for the time that I was performing the Reiki. As soon as it stopped, then it would come back. Yeah. But it gave me that relief. And then I realized when I was doing the Reiki course, actually... It made it forced me to meditate. It forced me to take time out. And as I've said, I'm no, I'm not good at doing that. I'm always 100 miles an hour. So, and I, and I have to say, I don't look forward to doing it. And if my Reiki master is listening to this, she'll kill me for that. But um, I don't look forward to doing Reiki because I don't want to sit down. I don't want to relax. I don't want to have to lie there and think about what I've got to do. But by the time I finished it, I'm a different person, and um, and I like to give Reiki to other people when I can do and. And I'm part of a group of other women who have similar outlooks. And it's more just about, it's it's really natural way of thinking. It's, it's nothing fuddy-duddy. It's nothing woo-woo. It's nothing witchy. Although I'd love to be a white witch one day. Um, but I, it's, it's nothing profound. It's just looking after yourself. It's thinking in a different way. It's making sure you're being positive. Uh, and even when you're not being positive, it's thinking, that's okay. I can just have a bit of a grumpy day. But... I'm really good at rationalizing why I'm upset about something or why I'm having a wobble or why I'm anxious. And I think that's really the only um, justification I need. I'll just say to myself, okay, that's fine, Abby, you can have that wobble, but you know why you're having it. So that's fine. If I don't know why I'm having it, that's when I would panic or um, I would, you know, I wouldn't be coping work very well with it, but I am really good at rationalizing. And sometimes I need someone to help me. You know, I'll, I'll just have to ring a friend and say, Am I being stupid or is there a rational answer to this? And um, nine times out of ten, they'll tell me I'm being rational, which is good. Um, so I don't know. I just um, I don't have anything major. It's only the Reiki. Um, and it's just being totally aware of what, as you say, the, the things that make you relax and the, mm. and the play that you need. Mm. So for so long, I used to think, 
to relax, I have to meditate or to relax, I have to sit still or to relax, I've got to, um, you know, go for a walk in a field somewhere. But actually that doesn't do it for me. Mm. Um, and, I, and when I realised that, because I have the most horrendous sense of guilt all the time, I have to be helping. I have to be getting that last thing done. I even texted you the other day, you know, to get, you know, the information over to you for the podcast. Yeah. I was like, oh, I felt guilty, so I better do it. But I shouldn't have that guilt. And then when I started to realise that that guilt is an unhealth, unhealthy um, feeling and emotion, um, I was just starting to be a bit nicer to myself. And that's really the extent of my spiritual side of it. I won't go into the crystals and the <laughs> woo-woo bit. But, um, yeah, no, yeah, I mean, that's... Just little things that make me happy. Yeah, absolutely. Abby, you know, being kind to yourself and, and, and sort of not being in love with yourself, but loving yourself, loving who you are as a person. I yeah. think that's, for me, that's one of the, one of the, one of the main revelations I've had, I've come to as well. Just, just coming to terms with myself and not being my own worst critic, really. Um, yeah. Seems to be, yeah, definitely where it's at. Um, and so, I am, I am my worst critic yeah. and I get told off for it all the time. And I, I'm almost, I'm fed up with being told off for it, I suppose. And so I actually started to make a bit of a change. Yeah. Um, and it's also not having the expectation on yourself. Like some people love yoga. I know you really like yoga. Mm. I can't, I, I can do yoga once every few months and I enjoy it. But it's for me, I'm too, it's too slow for me. So yeah. I, I can't, the, my way to relax is to just be, I've made 15 meals for different people <laughs> in, the, in the kitchen and then learn the guitar and then, pick up a ukulele and learn that as well that's my way to do it that's classic that's brilliant that's brilliant well I really I think I think in in certain terms you are very similar uh to to my personality as far as I'm not sure whether you've heard of the uh, strength deployment inventory it's 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 about people performance and uh process and I would say you're very red which is similar to me which is for very performance and output um probably mixed with a little bit of green which is you know process driven which you have to be as a you know uh, as a uh, forensic um scientist and and deep diving into some of the evidence but i think you're a meld of probably red and green which is which is performance based and sometimes probably you're purely red at some points but you could be maybe quite process driven as well which is which is something you probably need to be but yeah. i'm very much i have my to-do list and if it's taking me to 11 yeah. p.m to do my to-do list it's that's what it's taking me i've just got to got to get it done oh, yeah. But, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, Abby, it's, it's been fantastic talking to, to you today. And I just, I really, some of those lessons learned, some of the answers you've given are just absolutely gold dust. So um, I just really, um, I really thank you just for your time because I've, I've really appreciated um, everything. Well, not at all. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. So I, I think your podcast is brilliant and I've been listening to it with, um, bated breath for the next episode so um yeah i really enjoyed it and just to tell my story has been a privilege so thank you very much pleasure absolute pleasure thanks Abby.